Well, good morning. It's awesome to be back with you this morning. I'm excited to pick up Jonah today and continue the narrative, but in case you've forgotten, uh, I want to do sort of scenes from last week. Dun, dun, dun. So God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is in the Assyrian Empire, to deliver a message of God's judgment on those pretty evil and cruel people. Okay? uh, Jonah, he declines. How does he decline? Well, he says, no, I don't think so. He goes to a port city called Joppa in the opposite direction, and then he, he goes to a ship. He pays for his ticket. He gets on the ship, and it's headed for Tarshish, which might as well be Mars, given how far it is in the ancient world from the place that he's supposed to be. And you can picture the hair flip as he walks down that pier and over the, uh, on the gangplank onto the ship. He turns his pretty head and walks away. And somehow, we got a full sermon out of that. Go figure. Anyway, this, although the translation that, that Tim just read it in, the translation in the Pew Bibles, doesn't quite capture it. It's one of those beautiful moments in Scripture that I really love because it's a but God moment. The original Hebrew uh, says something, and the, the English Standard Version, or the Extra Spiritual vision, Version, depending on how snotty you want to be about translations, and by the way, don't be, these are both good translations. Today we're going to look in the ESV as I teach this because there are a few aspects, again, that I would like to point out. Hardly any, but here we go. But God... In the ESV, it's going to be but the Lord because it's using God's personal name, Yahweh. And it's going to be saying that in the middle of this scene from last week, we know that there's an intervention happening because what is Jonah doing? He's getting out of town as far away from what God wants him to do as possible, which in a sense is getting as far away from God himself as possible. But God is going to intervene in a way that I personally wouldn't enjoy. But maybe if you've gone through this kind of thing before, you know what good God can bring from difficulties. So let me just take a moment and pray as we look at the word together. Oh God, our maker and our master, would you open our eyes and open our ears to what you want us to see and hear? Would you shake from us any complacency that we have? Would you reel us back from rebellion? I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, in whom there was never and will never be a spot of dissent or rebellion from your will. Amen. Okay. Verse 4, and uh, we'll throw the ESV up here. Later, later, if... If what's up there and what's coming out of my mouth when I read in the longer passages doesn't match, you know, somebody shriek at me. Ever, ever been invited to do that before? Okay, today's the day. But the Lord, verse 4 says, hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Dire. God intervenes with Jonah's plans to separate himself from God. God is pictured here. If you, if you think about the, the image, he's thrown a fastball. He's throwing it high and tight. 
he's throwing chin music to Jonah. Hey, can I get your attention? There's a way in which some people are going to hear that and say, oh, there we go again. That paternalistic God, that got to follow the rules or I'm going to smite you, God, that going to throw his weight around and break up the ship because you wouldn't do what I asked, God. And if that's the way that you're responding, let me challenge you with an image from my own life, a memory that I have of, uh, you know, I was playing with a ball, and I remember my dad picking me up roughly, pulling me off my feet, and I remember feeling surprise and outrage, and then what I felt was wind as a car went by really fast where the ball had gone and where I would have run had dad not been more clued in than I was. Is it possible, do you think, that God has a bigger good in mind for you and for me than you and I do? Is it possible that when we were running after a ball, he saw something else that needed to be addressed? You and I can come to that realization, but I got to tell you, that's not what Jonah did. That's not the first recognition that comes to his mind. The only ones who understand the danger at this point in time are the sailors. So uh, verse 5 says, Then the mariners were afraid. Seattle quaked. No, I'm sorry. The, the, the ship people were afraid. And each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, I had somebody stop me after first service and say, he asked me a bunch of questions because he was in the Navy, and he said, what you want to do is get everything down below decks because that's going to stabilize your ship. And I said, have you sailed a lot of 8th century watercraft? Have you? And he didn't think much of that response. So let me just tell you something. You got two ways to go here. Either they're doing the right thing or they're doing the wrong thing. They're doing something because they are absolutely terrified that they're going to die. And what you and I do in that moment tends to be either the right thing or the wrong thing. And sometimes, whether we do the right thing or the wrong thing, the ship's going under. And other times, maybe there's something that can be done about it. But we've read through the passage. They don't have a solution in their hands. So... Confronted with a terrible storm, two things happen. These sailors cry out to their gods. Sounds like each one has their own, maybe. And then they lighten the ship. So they pray and they do. And the story goes on, right? So we know that neither one nor the other nor the combination of both solved their problem. The solution came in a completely different way than anything they had in their hands to do. None of the idols that they had, none of the gods that they worshipped, none of the ideals that they pursued, none of the rules of life that they followed, on the one hand, were able to save them from this storm. And on the other hand, whatever they threw overboard, and whether it was a good idea or not, whether it was dumb or valuable, whether it was a llama or, you know, silver, that didn't make a difference either. 
their philosophy and their actions weren't enough. And I wonder if you and I have ideas that we rush to when things get difficult. A lot of people have an idea that if I stay optimistic in tone and concentrate on the positive and almost intentionally have a saccharine view of life, then everything's going to end up okay. My personal experience is however long I've been able to play that out hasn't been long enough. But the stuff still gets me down. Some people have an idol of harder work, and maybe it's on their desk. Not in reality, just virtually. And if I spend more hours in front of that idol, I can get the job done and everything will work out okay. A lot of people have a little G-God who they feel promises them health and wealth, future happiness. And yet that's not what they experience. Maybe we have stuff in our lives that brings pleasure enough when things are going well. But as soon as things get difficult, the toys that entertain us don't really sustain us. The friends, the network of fellow backpatters and getters ahead. Boy, when you're the one in tough times, funny how nobody answers your text. And so there's a way in which we can avail ourselves of these two options, of ideas or religion, of taking action of some kind, getting rid of something. I'm going to simplify my life. When the storm is big enough, these will never be an answer. So what is your go-to fix instead of running to God? Because the biggest of these storms that we face, oh my goodness, these are the ones that drive us past the puny gods, past our crummy collections of stuff, to our knees, before an omnipotent, supreme ruler of the universe. But as Jonah teaches us, maybe not immediately. Maybe that's not the first place we go. The sailors get it. Jonah, on the other hand, according to verse 5, had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. I mean, who's an amazing nap taker? This guy. I, I love me some naps. And, you know, my hat is off to Jonah. Picture the scene, if you will. There's a crazy storm going on. There's sailors shrieking out to their gods. There's junk being thrown overboard. Maybe llamas, you know, they're making noise. They're banging against the side as they go down. They're bumping up against the hole as they float back up. In all this chaos... Why is Jonah sleeping? Oddly enough, people disagree. What? People in the world disagree? Yes, including about Scripture sometimes. And I think the reason they disagree is that the writer doesn't tell us why he's sleeping. So people have speculated a few things, and I just want to tell you, the text doesn't say that it's one of these. It doesn't say that it's multiple of them. So I'm going to suggest that we each look at which one fits us or which ones fit us and go, yeah, I'd do that. So one is that he's tired from his journey. People suggest that. A second is that he's overcome by fear of the storm in his own special way. Number three is people point out it's depressing to defy God. 
And number four is, it's a little different than the others. His is an obstinate sleep of somebody who would rather die than help those people, those evil Ninevites. So because the writer doesn't tell us, I'm just going to flesh these, these four things out slightly more. He has reason to be tired. It's about 60 miles from Jonah's hometown to the port that he set out from. 60 miles is nothing to us, right? If you've got a good bike, you can do that in no time. Well, you can do it in no time. I won't. Maybe you've got a Tesla. That'll work. So we give Jonah a Tesla. Well, he didn't have a Tesla that we know of. If he did have a Tesla, there are no roads that would be capable of handling his, his Tesla that we know of. And even if there were a Tesla and roads, there are no charging stations that we know of. So Jonah would be in a world of hurt. It's a long ways away, right? We grant that. Okay. Second thing, overcome by the storm. So these experienced sailors, the storm comes, the ship is tossed, they spring into action. Why is that? Because in response to danger, they are going into fight mode. This thing isn't going to take me. I'm going to defeat it. If you know Tim Riley at all, you know that he's, when danger appears, he's going to fight. So don't jump out and surprise him because he'll punch you right in the throat. Don't ask me how I know that. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> now, Jonah is already in a different mode because there's danger in going to Nineveh in Assyria, those wicked people who are really cruel. And so he's already in flight. That's a second way of responding to danger. So what's left to him? Well, one of the other possible responses to danger is to faint. And maybe that's what he's doing. Okay. Third thing, depressed by defiance. So Jonah has had a pattern of hearing from God because he's a prophet. Now he is opting out of hearing from God. He has, in a sense, severed the relationship. What can severed relationships do? They can produce depression. In my experience, being depressed and sleeping too early and too late and too long kind of go hand in hand. You may differ, but I see that as definitely a possible response of Jonah's. And then this last one, obstinate to death. So Jonah so despises those people of Nineveh that he would rather die than be God's envoy to them. He's already made his choice. He said, I'm not going to do what God has commanded. And I'm willing to pursue that decision to death. And in this case, the death of the sailors and the destruction of the ship as well. And so he says, I'm willing to be a martyr so that I don't have to reach those awful people. But let me ask you, in your context, are you tired? Are you overcome? Are you depressed? Or are you obstinate? Are you shutting down to the people and circumstances around you? If so, here comes the captain of the ship with a message from God. <laughs> Verse 6. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah doesn't want to hear from God, but the captain does. 
Jonah doesn't want God's intervention, but the captain does. The pagan's looking pretty good to me right now. This pagan ship captain is all about finding out what God's intention is. And he uses the same language in this verse that God used in his original call to Jonah in verse 1. Arise! Get, get up, get up, get, get, get down. Okay, a bunch of stuff is happening in lives while you and I are lulled asleep. There are people who are suffering, and we know some of them. There are people who are dying, and we know some of them. The captain is here to agree with God and to remind not just Jonah, but me and you, whatever got us sleeping, it's time to wake up. When Charles Spurgeon, who was an English preacher and pastor and trainer of pastors, when he got to this this passage, I really like what he said. Um, and for those of you who really like the King James, he's going to quote from it at the end of this, this quotation. I didn't put it on the screen, so you have to pay attention for a moment here. I had sooner the Lord would send claps of thunder to this church, he said, in the form of heavy trials and troubles, the removal of your pastor, the taking away of our best people, that riots of mobs or the slander of the press, then that we should continue to multiply and increase and we should make this place a huge dormitory wherein we snort out God's praises in our sleep instead of an armory where we sharpen our swords on Sundays to go out the whole week long contending for God and for the good of men. Never may these benches be beds nor these seats couches for sluggards to recline upon. What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise and call upon thy God. All right. I should probably be yelling it more since he was an open-air preacher in the 19th century and could speak to 10,000 people at one time, but we're sparing you that. In our context, what does this look like? I'd say one thing that I see a lot of and have been a part of is our experience of corporate messaging really starts to draw us into something. So whether, whether it's a, a hardware company that's, that's peddling a gadget or software manufacturer that's twiddling software, services that are being hawked, food that's being served, all these things, the message is these are going to change the world. And we find ourselves in this valley put into a sleeper hold by this crazy thing where we begin to buy the messaging of product companies. There's nothing like a storm to rattle us out of that. Because however much I like my phone, it is not going to sustain me in the difficult times of life. Last Sunday night, my neighbor two doors down, his life was remembered. He was 55 when he died. There were people there who were beyond grief. They were in despair. They were grieving like people who have no hope. And you know what? I have a source of hope that's bigger than that. And you know what? I never shared that source of hope with my neighbor because I never spent enough time with him 
that he asked me questions. I was tired. I was busy. I had a job. I had school. I had ministry. And what I never had was an interaction with him in which I got to say, here is why I'm not afraid. Here is why I have hope for tomorrow. Did I thwart God's plans for my neighbor? Of course, I don't have the power to do that. Did I miss out on an opportunity to have a unique interaction with a wonderful human being? I did. And so I have to tell you, from my own personal experience, our local gods keep us busy sleepwalking. Maybe that's you too. Are you too busy to engage? Are you too careful and cautious that if there is engagement, you're not going to go anywhere deep or significant? Dangerous. Are you fully asleep? Well, meanwhile, these sailors have run out of options for things they can do to help, and so they're going to try to determine who's to blame for this mess. So in verse 7, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. All right, lots, it's like an, an ancient version of dice or drawing straws or pulling names out of a, a jar, except they probably threw the jar overboard, so it wouldn't have been in the jar. And the book of Jonah isn't advocating this decision-making method, all right? But interestingly, the way the lot falls, they're clear. It's Jonah. And so in the next verse, they say to him, verse 8, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Tim Keller boils this down four questions for three things. A purpose, a place, and a race. And when I was reading that, I was like, wow, it's like an icebreaker. Hey, where do you come from? You know, like we're at a meet and greet, you know, yay. But they're in dire situation here. They're trying to figure out the supernatural cause of this crazy storm. And so these questions are supposed to identify who is it that's so angry that this obscenely crazy storm has come upon us? Who have you angered, Jonah? So purpose. That could be an occupation or a trade. Things like guilds had their own gods oftentimes. A place was a common way of identifying a local god. Maybe there'd be a, a high place, a hill in your area, and so several towns would all worship that local god. It's very regional in orientation. Or maybe all people of one kind felt united under some god. And I was trying to figure out how we can connect slightly more with that uh, without jumping straight into modern times. And what I came up with was uh, from Acts chapter 19. Paul is in Ephesus, and he, a riot gets started. And this is one of the, the passages that I know the version in my notes and the version on the screen are going to be different. So if we could throw the, the uh, text up here. I'm going to read from up here, so pardon my back. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning 
the way. That's what they called the early church, the early believers in Christ. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, oh, a craftsman, okay, brought no little business to the craftsmen, okay? These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not God's crazy idea, right? Innovative. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that people won't upgrade their idols every year or two. Oh, I'm sorry. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Their significance is coming from the greatness of their God. As we find in verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples will not let him. Okay, don't go talk to a mob. Okay, this is just a free tip for you. It won't work. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were uh, friends of his, these are leaders, uh, sent to him and were urging him, don't go to the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. They don't even know what they're rioting about. That's how mobs are. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They've got a bunch of mixed-in reasons that this God not only has to be worshipped by them, but by, revered by other people and valued by other people. And they're upset that this person who has a different God might come up and say something disparaging about her or raising another one far beyond her. Look, Artemis, <laughs> she's a Greek goddess, okay? This temple that they're talking about is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's a big, big deal for them. These fine citizens expect you to honor their God if you're going to go ahead and be in their city. And if you think about that, you go, well, I don't know anybody who literally their God is Santa Clara. Like, I, I don't know anybody who, who thinks that way. But we still have local gods, and I think the one that's easiest for me to hold on to at any rate, I mean, there are other things. Maybe your family is like that, or maybe you've got cultural customs that are like that. But what what comes to my mind is these companies who have global influence, and if we here in the Valley are workers for them, there's not just a temptation, there's actually enticement that we devote our lives to these companies. So 
Companies like Apple and Google and Facebook and Cisco, they're global. They have people who buy their products worldwide. They have devotees worldwide. But here in the Valley, all those companies and more, they want, they want to be the center of your life, worker. And if you think about what these people are expecting of their ancient local gods, what do they want? Well, they want to give something to their gods so that they get good things back. And our companies, if we labor for them and the company approves of our labor, guess what? You get a bonus. You get a raise. You get a promotion. You get a claim. But if you anger the company, maybe your livelihood's at stake. Maybe you don't get a full bonus. Maybe you don't get promoted. And there's this tension where we are drawn into having a local God that it didn't set out to be a local God. We didn't intend to make it a local God, and then there it is. We make these statements of identity. I'm an engineer. I'm a Googler. It says something about who we are, but it also can end up saying something about who we fundamentally are. And that can be a little scary. So my question is, what is your most important self-definition? How does it relate to your creator? So these sailors are hoping to extract from Jonah, who doesn't seem inclined to help them, this information that might save their lives. They're saying, look, the God is angry at us, and we're willing to give him what he wants. Just tell us who he is and what, he, what he's up to. Who are you? What are you about? Where are you from? He said to them in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he makes the question about race. Isn't that interesting? It's not that surprising, is it? He hated those other people so much. Of course he prefers his own. But then he moves on to the question that they're really asking, which is, who's mad about this? Who's upset about this? And the way he explains God, what he's trying to communicate is, this is not a local God. This is the God of heaven. This is the God of the sea. And it's the God who made dry land. Jonah says he fears this God of everything. But his reverence for God is twisted, isn't it? In a way that makes him love his own people to the exclusion of everyone else. So he's run away from the Assyrians. He's ignoring the danger to these poor pagan sailors who are just trying to understand what's going on so much that even though they're trying to save their lives and his, he's opted out until they call him up. But the sailors, they respond in real fear to God. Verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told him. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. The sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. And the underlying text says, They feared with a great fear. They are shocked. If God, if God is this 
overarching God, the supreme God of everything, and you're his follower, why on earth are you running? Why on earth are you defying him? You got us into this mess. Now just tell us, how can we get out? Let me stop again and ask you, there are people in your lives who are in desperate straits. Do you know how they can escape slavery to sin and the death that that causes? I mean, first, do you know for yourself what that's about? And then second, can you talk about it? Can you articulate it in a way when somebody asks what they must do? Because these sailors are right there. They want to know how to have life. Happens in our lives, too, sometimes. Here's what the sailors do, though, when, when they hear these instructions. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. I have to say, these sailors continue to be way more positively portrayed than the alleged protagonist of this book, right? He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to hear from God. He hasn't engaged with these people on the ship. He, he's in this situation where he's told them that, hey, you've, you've got to throw me overboard, and they can't bring themselves to harm him. Can I just say that's a really admirable thing to do? And isn't it a shame that, that this guy who's supposed to represent God doesn't doesn't have that kind of mercy for other people. Nevertheless, also look at what they're doing. They're continuing to look to their own efforts to save their hides and his, and they couldn't do it. I have people I love who are looking to their own efforts to save themselves, to save others from the storms in their lives. Some of those people love justice and mercy, and God is described as someone who loves those things too. But the way to God isn't one that we can reach through our own efforts. Escape by your own effort will never work. In our time and place, uh, Tropical Storm Barry, last I heard this morning, power had been cut in Louisiana, and there was water surging over some levees, but it's going to weakened today, but in our text, the storm continues to worsen. So verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They won't lay their hands on Jonah until they've said, look, God, you've, you've given us literally no other option. They've exhausted all their options before they finally do what God, through Jonah, has said to do. What do they do? Verse 15, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. There's a lot of hurling in this passage. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They obeyed the instructions, and out of this absolute chaos, stillness, the sea instantaneously calmed. I don't think it's sensible to look at this passage and say, oh, these men converted to ongoing worship of the one true God. But in that moment, given what they knew, they did all they could to pursue him. They didn't come 
I don't know, so hardened and embittered by the failure of what they'd tried so far that they were unwilling to try anything else. They didn't lose hope that there was somehow a solution to their problem, even though they realized they couldn't bring it about on their own. And for the first time in the story, the reader is given a chance to look at Jonah and say there's something okay about him. He offered himself up willingly, not quickly, but ultimately willingly. And so naturally, I'm reminded of someone else who offered himself up willingly. The gospel writer, Mark, describes a time when Jesus was sleeping during a storm that frightened some other sailors. So from Mark chapter 4, verse 36, And leaving the crowd, they took him, that's Jesus, with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. And he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were feared with great fear, filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? Jesus wasn't indifferent to his plight. His question was, why don't you understand who I am? I'm in the boat. I'm greater than the storm and the waves. My care for you is beyond anything you can comprehend. Later, these guys who never got it the first go-around would understand. Later, when he'd been voluntarily thrown into not that sea, but the cross, where his own people said, we repudiate this guy, he isn't what we want. And the Romans said, we'll execute him. He willingly went. But then later, he met with them again because he was alive again. And they got a chance to go back through the scriptures and he got to say, You thought I was one thing, but I'm another thing. And let me show you how God's word has always pointed to this being the case and that I'm the point. So later they understood that. And Matthew wrote in Matthew 12, Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is talking about one thing and he's comparing himself in a way that seems kind of odd if you read Uh, Matthew 12, to Jonah. But we can see the difference here, right? Jonah was recalcitrant. Jonah was unwilling to help. Jonah wasn't interested in what God wanted to do. Jesus gave himself up so that you and I could be reconciled with God. If you've heard Tim preach or me preach from the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, you know that we love that book and that passage. And uh, in the interest of time, I, I can't read it again. But you know why we love it? Because it's got a piece that's just like this passage. There's a but God in there. 
And so I wonder whether we can jump to verse 4. So what, what happened before this in Ephesians 2 is we were dead in our sins and transgressions, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, it says, he poured out on us grace through Christ. He poured out on us a solution for the problem of death that we were stuck with. He poured out on us an affirmation that there's something about you that God values. And then he poured out even more. He knit together people from different cultures who originally worshipped different gods, had a different understanding of the world, and in Christ we're connected in a way that we never could be if we simply lived near each other or had the same job. You know why we love that? Because we know that we can't make dead things alive. Only Christ can do that. To be honest, I have trouble keeping live things alive oftentimes. But in Christ is the solution not only to storms that won't subside no matter what we do, but solutions to justice, provisions of mercy, acceptance of people who are different than us. Jesus willingly stepped out into the ultimate storm, into the chaos and death that we caused by our sin. And Jesus has the power to make alive. It's totally okay with me if you are a Googler or a Santa Claren or a Chinese American or a unicycle rat. Well, maybe not that one. But let the thing that you are most identified with in your own mind, in your own heart, and by others be the most important place. And that ought to be not dead anymore because of Christ. Be a dead person in recovery, if you will. And you and I have an opportunity to experience that because Christ accepted us who were different from him because of sin. Because he agreed with the Father in a way that Jonah never did and accepted his mission of mercy to cruel and vicious us, whether we like to admit it or not. And he reconciles all kinds of people from every demographic, every age, every place, to the Father. Jesus has the power to bring together. Jonah eventually allowed himself to be a sacrifice. But what if, in the story of Jonah, Jonah had both God's character and God's power? In Christ, that's what happened. Jesus can sit in the boat with us and he can comfort us and he can calm the sea and we can entrust our lives to him and we can know him and we can sail where God wants us to go because of his work. Do you entrust yourself to him?